sexism sells, or so it could seem, based on how women's bodies are frequently portrayed in popular media. It is fair to say we share a unanimous understanding that the dominating media narrative paints women as objects of erotic desire, a notion subtly ingrained in us from a tender age. It manifests overtly through explicit magazine covers, strategically placed in grocery checkout lines, or the exaggerated physical features of video games and comic book characters. Pronounced curves and ways so slender they seem almost imaginary. Hi, my name's Adele. I'm Eve. And I'm Thorana. You're listening to State of the Pod, live from Ithaca, New York. Consider, for a moment, the mental image that springs to mind when I mention Pixar Mom. It's likely a very specific and stereotypical portrayal. What does this say about the state of media today and the female body's place within it? In this episode, we will dive into video games, music videos, magazines, and more to unpack how the media reflects and bolsters sexism in society today. And while it seems the media has rendered the female body inextricable from male sexual gratification, there too has been a recent influx in female sexual empowerment through media. When we untether the female body from male desire, we allow our bodies to be seen as subjects of our own agency as opposed to objects of the male gaze. One of the most used forms of media today is video games. And it cannot be understated the impact that unrealistic body portrayals in video games could have on generations that grow up playing them. Let's dive into this further. From the damsel in distress trope to fierce independent protagonists, we've come a long way in video game storylines. But how far have we really come and where are we heading? That's a great question, Adele. For the longest time, video games were dominated by male characters. Mm -hmm. Women, if they appeared at all, were often side characters, damsels to be rescued or just eye candy. For sure, like think of games such as early Super Mario series where Princess Peach was constantly in need of a saving, or Street Fighter Mm -hmm. where female characters were scantily clad and highly sexualized. That's true. As time has passed and the industry evolved, so did the portrayal of women. Take Lara Croft, for instance. Initially introduced in Tomb Raider as a highly sexualized character, she underwent significant character development and redesign in the 2013 reboot which focused more on skills, intelligence, and resilience. That's cool. Definitely need more (laughs) of that. In recent times, we have seen more complex and strong female protagonists. Aloy from Horizon Zero Dawn, Ellie from The Last of Us, and Cassandra from Assassin's Creed Odyssey come to mind. These characters are not only strong, but also have deep, multidimensional personalities. And it's worth noting that while we have have these fantastic protagonists, there's still a lot of work to be done. There's a lack of diversity with women of different races, body types, and backgrounds being represented. So I'd argue that a more intersectional um, framework is needed. Definitely. It's essential that we consider the behind the scenes aspect of it too. Like what is going into these sexist portrayals? The more diverse the developers, writers, and creators in the industry, the more authentic representation we'll be able to see on screen. And we can't forget about the online gaming community, too. It all feeds into each other. Female gamers often face a lot of harassment and toxicity, which could be a reflection of how players are impacted by the portrayal of women in these games. And, like, just going off of that a bit, you can also notice, like, I know my brother's on Twitch, which is, like, a video game streaming app, um, dominated largely by men, but you see, like, when women 
are the ones playing the video games and they're in the corner like a lot of the pronunciation is on their breasts and showing their breasts and that's how they um sort of establish their presence on the platform mm, yeah that's so interesting so the portrayal of women in games can impact societal views and vice versa when games perpetuate harmful stereotypes, it can contribute to these attitudes offline as well. As we've highlighted, there has been significant progress. Games today are certainly more inclusive and diverse than ever before. But the question is, what does our future hold? I believe we'll continue to see more diversity, not just in gender, but in all aspects. Video games are a powerful medium, and there's so much potential for telling unique and varied stories. Here's for hoping for a world where everyone can see themselves represented authentically in the media, the virtual worlds in which we love to immerse ourselves in. Recent analysis of the representation of women in music videos argues that they often reinforce reductive gender stereotypes rather than platforming empowering depictions of women. So many of today's most popular music videos feature women dressing and dancing provocatively with a focus on emphasizing their bodies. As the analysis describes, the camera lingers on women's curves, cleavage, and revealing outfits. Their identity is reduced to their sexualized bodies. They are stripped of their individuality and instead cast as a mere accessory for whichever artist they are supporting. That's disappointing. This prevalent sexual objectification not only mirrors, but also perpetuates pervasive sexist ideologies in Western society. Yeah. Instead of honoring women's bodies and sexuality for their intrinsic di dignity, they are often relegated to mere sources of male amusement and consumption. The dominance of the male gaze is evident, framing women as objects intended solely for their pleasure. However, in a capitalist society, it could be argued that these women are simply embracing their autonomy and choosing to portray themselves this way in music videos, maybe to gain exposure and fame, become an influencer, or simply to have a good time. Definitely, the more flexibility in terms of like media production and all has like allowed for greater autonomy and control. And the mass media has certainly evolved into a powerful institution, with that being said, shaping cultural norms and influencing expectations surrounding gender. The way it portrays specific subjects, especially the incessant sexual objectification of women in music videos, actively contributes to the perpetuation of broader misogyny. By consistently depicting women as objects for male sexual satisfaction, it reinforces the notion that a woman's existence is primarily defined by fulfilling male desire. Mm. Even when women actively engage in these videos, the underlying narrative still kind of feeds into this patriarchal order. Rather than empowering women as autonomous individuals with their own desires and talents, the betrayal seems to reinforce an unsettling paradigm where women are seen as subordinate objects rather than empowered subjects. The media, in this context, music videos, becomes a powerful tool in shaping societal perspectives and maintaining an unequal power structure. Yeah, that's true. By steering clear of the exploitation of women's bodies in the media industry, we pave the way for a transformative shift. Instead of relying on tired tropes, we can harness the potential of media, like music videos or video games, to reshape the prevailing objectifying narrative around women. Definitely, and I think that's where our importance comes in as a consumer to sort of deconstruct this aforementioned paradigm as diverse and equitable representations not only challenge the norm, but also empower artists to showcase their authenticity. This isn't just about breaking molds. It's about creating a space where genuine stories and talents can truly resonate, fostering a deeper connection between the audience and the media. It's a harmonious evolution towards a more inclusive and empowering industry. I think the first thing that comes to mind for me when thinking about um, 
women's bodies portrayed in media is Miley Cyrus's Wrecking Ball. Yes. I think this was a lot of people's introduction into how far you can push the boundaries of how bodies can be shown in media, especially music videos, Mm -hmm. combined with her performances at the VMAs and such things. And I remember there being a lot of backlash around this and people saying, oh, she was forced into it or whatever. But I think Miley has come out and said that she chose to do this. She wanted to explore how she could use her body in all of her art. What did you guys think of the phenomena around Wrecking Ball? I mean, for me personally, I was so young, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and, but at the same time, like considering that I was sort of, um, wired to view it as distasteful and condemning as, mm-hmm. you know, as a woman we're we're constantly, or, and as young girls, have you ever heard of, I'm going to get into my minor a bit. Sarah Ahmed is one of my favorite, favorite feminist scholars. And in one of her pieces, um, she discusses how we are assigned gender at birth and, you know, going forward, we're continued to be reassigned. And as a woman, those reassignments are being told to keep our voices lower, close our legs, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And that is how we are continu- continually reassigned into conforming to our gender. And it becomes this, as she says, like this loop tightening um, where we really, at the end of the day, are like stripped of any autonomy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that kind of what Miley experienced here and what women at large experience in the media is highly reflective of this. Definitely. I think I was sort of in prime time for this video because I was a teenager when this came out. And I remember the what people were saying was or what guys were saying mostly as like an insult on this video was like, oh, this is not sexy. And that was supposed to be Mm. like, oh, she's like trying to be sexy, but she's not. So we're going to belittle her for that. But we're also going to slut shame her because she's trying to be sexy. It was like she couldn't really win. And I think that's. I think that she kind of knew that. I think she wanted to just make a statement and be like, I'm just doing this. I don't care what you think, you know? It's really a double-edged sword for us. Yeah. yeah. And I saw that, too, through WAP, Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion. Yes. And sort of, like, these mm. iconic women in the, like, occupying the rap world, which is such a heavily, like, misogynistic space and really, like, has been since the birth of rap, despite there having still been, like, you know... S- iconic female rappers in the 90s and 80s etc but you know that when that music video was released the backlash that that received it was just absolute mayhem and paranoia and it's almost like this fear of the sexually liberated woman because you have all these male rappers talking about this and this objectifying language and women are their bitches and blah 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 blah, blah, blah. and it no you know nothing Mm -hmm. is said but god forbid uh, Cardi B and Megan The Stallion start, you know, twerking and talking about their WAPs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think another thing that goes into this is just, is like the racialized body yes. and as well as like some like some fat phobia. Like mm-hmm. I think with Miley Cyrus's Wrecking Ball, you know, she's like a slimmer white woman, and so she was pushing the envelope. But when WAP came out, it's it's these curvy, confident black women and just them. They were just being constantly dogged yeah. on. And it's like, what does that say about, like, who in media gets a say over how they portray their body? Yeah. It's, this, yeah. like, this, it's like this symbolic annihilation. And, yeah, the, the black female body has been historically fetishized and, mm-hmm. you know, condemned to the most easily exploited status in Western society. And they were, you know, in making 
WAP and establishing their presence in the rap rap world, it, it really expanded beyond the rap world. They're re- really breaking the mold. So to me, I saw that, and I was still kind of young, but I was like, hell yeah, like, yeah. kudos. Yeah. I think with these music videos, like, the time since Wrecking Ball, music videos have completely changed. I think that women are showing a lot more, and whether that is as an accessory to another artist or as themselves, I think the doors are opening for different portrayals of bodies in music videos and and how we can use that power. And I think I wanted to bring something into this conversation. It's called media cultivation theory. Mm -hmm. And it essentially proposes that the more we see things in media, the more we believe them to be reality. Um, So this was initially created when a lot of violent portrayals and TV shows makes people think that there's more crime in the world. And so I think um, the more women are showing their bodies, um, I think this has affected beauty standards mm-hmm. and and people thinking like um, that this is how women are in the world and maybe allowing some of these misogynistic spaces on the internet to flourish. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's a scary time. It is. And think about, you know, how many people are out there who their primary source of information and, you know, where they consider themselves to be the most educated from is the media, you know, just so, and, you know, how does that um, paint their perspective of the world around them and consequently um, perpetuate these highly sexist, misogynistic ideals? I know. I think that especially on social media, like on TikTok, if you're scrolling TikTok and you start seeing videos of these like pretty girls doing their makeup or dancing, and then that's like the algorithm that you're going to get into. And before you know it, you're only exposed with a certain type of look. And if you're a young girl, it's going to affect how you feel about yourself and it's going to affect how you try to make yourself look. Yeah, we'll be talking about that later in the episode, going into influencers and models. And next up, we want to talk about the explosion of online sex work and how that has kind of changed people's perceptions of women's bodies and autonomy through the Internet. So we're going to be talking about OnlyFans. And for those who are unaware of what OnlyFans is, um, according to Internet Matters, it is an online platform and app created in 2016. And with it, people can pay for content, photos, videos, live streams via a monthly membership and the content is mainly created by youtubers fitness trainers models content creators and public figures but it's also very popular with adult content creators so fans can not only pay this monthly subscription to someone whose content they really enjoy but they can also tip large sums for custom videos that match their specific desires so we had the pleasure to speak with an anonymous OnlyFans model to see how this medium is transforming how women work in the sex industry as it evolves. So what stood out to you guys from our conversations? Well, I mean, so much, but I guess, you know, once kind of reading over the interview responses and thinking about it, something that really struck me was her statement regarding how um, OnlyFans has truly given her more control over her body. Mm -hmm. And this really struck a chord as it challenges traditional narratives surrounding the power dynamics of female sexuality Um, which is, you know, often, as mentioned before, inextricable from male control and pleasure. Mm -hmm. Here, on the other hand, um, our interview candidate is both the subject and the controller of her own sexual narrative. And such an instance is illustrative of the myriad ways women can reclaim their bodies and sexual power, even when the predominant discourses say otherwise. 
Exactly. Definitely. OnlyFans is becoming this way for them to take back their body and profit from it if they so choose. The reclamation. Mm -hmm. The reclamation, exactly. Continuing this idea of the reclaimed sexual autonomy, um, following this interview, the three of us made note of how OnlyFans allows women to exist as both the subject and the controller of their sexual narrative, as we just said. And when asked about her thoughts on whether or not being on OnlyFans has been sexually liberating or not, our interview candidate mentioned that she had been victimized multiple times throughout her childhood. It's easy to go on through life carrying the weight of such traumas, and women may blame themselves succumbing to the pressures and and the stigmas that evoke. But in the case of our interview subject, her finding of an avenue to reestablish her relationship with her body via sexual liberation is a testament to the power of female agency, a concept so often denounced and nullified in mainstream media. She was able to find her own path forward to re-love her body in this way. And as we explored more into the topic of sexual liberation, our interview candidate discussed the beginning of her posting and selling pictures online. She described the genesis of this journey as somewhat of an epiphany. She was, in fact, the one in control of her body. Mm -hmm. Upon coming to this realization, it dawned upon her that she could determine her body's worth, whose hands it could be in, and who deserved her intimacy. Ensuing a youth riddle with sexual abuse and subjugation, Her newborn consciousness of her sexual autonomy is a powerful assertion of agency and a defiance against past oppressions. As Audre Lorde once said, the erotic can be used as the deepest life force, a force which moves us towards living in a fundamental way. Wow. And I think we'd argue our interview candidate demonstrates just that. Yeah. And on this note, I am encouraging every reader here to take the time to read Audre Lorde's uses of the erotic as power. I also yes. just think, like, if there's one, anything that epitomizes this conversation right now, it is that. It's a big so inspiration it is. for this episode. Thank, yes. Love me some, love me some Lorde. Um, yeah, no, but, okay, getting back on track. So, additionally, on top of what we've just discussed, our interview can- candidate went on to um, say herself how... OnlyFans was not only an opportunity for sexual freedom, but also an inspiration to seek therapy and set the boundaries for her own body. That's you know, great. once again, yeah, like going on this whole idea of reclamation and understanding that she is the one who um, really takes the reins when it comes to her autonomy. Mm-hmm. And, Relearning her worth. Yes. And, you know, so often women are reduced solely to the former. And so often women are really, you know, just so easily and readily reduced to being these vulnerable Um, easily exploited sexual objects depicted, as mentioned above, merely dispensable objects for pleasure. On this note, in the case of our interview candidate, OnlyFans enabled her to not only set her body's boundaries, but understand and work to maintain them. Such an accomplishment is significant in that it speaks volumes about her growth and self-awareness, two critical aspects of female selfhood frequently negated by mainstream media. Speaking of boundaries, our interview candidate also emphasized that she would take breaks from OnlyFans whenever she needed explaining you know, how she can really control what kind of content she wanted to put out there. For example, after having her child, she took an eight-month leave. I would love that much time off of work. <laughs> yeah. um, Especially in this country. Yeah. <laughs> Th- this flexibility and this financial freedom that this allowed her is so refreshing to hear. Flexibility in her life work and being financially liberating is amazing. This emphasizes her personal autonomy and how working on OnlyFans is not only a question of power over your own body sexuality, but having the freedom and the power to take time off. 
It's important to consider that working on OnlyFans does not compromise our subject's identity. As discussed in the conversation with her, she has balanced her profession with motherhood. The working guidelines for OnlyFans has granted her the needed time off to enjoy and be part of the first months of motherhood, promoting bonding time with her newborn and full immersion into her new role as a mother. You know, she's able to be on OnlyFans, but also a mother. And I think that often people equate like being a sex worker as that being like your your body's only purpose. But she is able to use her body and have a very fulfilling life as a mother. And I think it shows that, you know, being a sex worker is not all that one is defined to be when that's their profession. Yeah. And not only that, but just think about the I guess the dichotomy of being a sex worker and a mother because you know being a mom who works women receive you know enough backlash enough like it's easy for a a mom to be rendered as an absent mother just for attending to her job and needing a babysitter every so often or you see the roles reverse when the father is home more and you know all of these just you know these they're cliches but very prevalent um gender norms so just her embodying or her embodiment of both of these roles is also um, a testament to breaching beyond these um, highly limited uh, peripheries of normative society. So, right, yeah. yeah. She mentioned that her partner does OnlyFans as well, so right. they do a bit of collaborating. And I mean, I think it's refreshing to sort of think about this in a way that they're just they just have a business together. And Mm -hmm. they have a child and they have a family and it isn't anything more than that. I feel like this is so stigmatized and yeah. yeah. And I think too, like, you know, it's also equated with porn, Mm -hmm. but I think, I mean, in our interview candidates case, considering like she is this almost like business partners with her partner, the difference with pornography is there's, there's no intimacy. There's no feeling it's, it's, considered the erotic but there's no sentiment and I think that you know something can only be erotic and pleasurable if there is some sort of sensation to it um so she's sort of yeah like there is a pleasure that she finds in this that is not like I don't know like inherently um pervasive or vulgar yeah and I mean obviously they're doing work together but they're also doing stuff that they would probably be doing anyways. Yeah, why not profit off of it? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, that's actually like, hey. Yeah. I, I hope this conversation is inspiring our listeners to question the stigma around sex workers. You know, yeah. it's obviously not a profession mm. for everyone. No. It can significantly change your life, but seeing someone in this profession, having a happy private life, there are many people in this industry who have children and who yeah. have lives. Mm-hmm. and. society at large should not be judging them um just you know making their money and and having a happy life they deserve just as much um life as the rest of us it's not it's not corrupt or anything so it's yeah (laughs) and they're no one's forcing them you know it's beautiful it is well said listeners we hope you found this discussion enlightening remember that everyone's journey is unique and there's no one-size-fits-all to empowerment and healing. 
Scholarship. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so, yeah, well, this entire conversation is not over, however. Um, we're just going to shift the focus over to that of influencers, specifically um, Instagram models or those you might find on TikTok. So digital sex workers, like OnlyFans models, often utilize social media to reach customers. If you have been anywhere on the Internet, it is clear that sexualized images are promoted by their algorithms. Yep. The, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I know it's like I had to actually do something recently for a class like at this I won't get into it but I had to like make like a fresh TikTok account and kind of go through it and see what the algorithm was ta- algorithm was tailored to some of like the first things that I would just see on my for you page just like ass like <laughs> stuff like that that was it and it just you know it just, gets clicks that's why it they gets promote cl- it exactly yeah. exactly and they just want to keep people mm-hmm. on the app longer mm-hmm. yeah. So, yeah, so those that make their living as social media influencers may capitalize on this in order to boost their fame. Yeah, and you sort of wonder who's at fault at this, because if you're an influencer posting only videos of your ass on social media, but that's your only way of making an income off of this social media account, because what everyone wants to see is your ass, then what are you going to do? I mean, if you've got it, like... (laughs) Flaunt it. (laughs) Flaunt it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um, but it's disheartening how the attention economy often thrives on the objectification of women. Definitely. Yeah. So you scroll through popular Instagram feeds and you're met with a constant barrage of sexualized images, whether it's models in suggestive poses, clad in lingerie or bathing suits. The pattern is really all too familiar. These images are designed for maximum likes and follows. They inadvertently turn women's bodies into commodities, perpetuating a cycle where profit often trumps genuine representation. Mm -hmm. And it's really a reflection of a broader issue within the digital landscape, where the currency of attention sometimes comes at the cost of respect and diversity. Definitely. But what is driving sexualized self-presentation and what are its impacts? So some research research that we'll be discussing explored these questions and analyzed how social and material structures on platforms like Instagram or TikTok incentivize sexualized content. Mm-hmm. And with that being said, influencers hold a unique space in the online landscape. Mm-hmm. A 2023 source states that influencers pride themselves on representing ordinary people who share their everyday life on Instagram and are correspondingly perceived as more relatable, authentic, and trustworthy than celebrities. This allows fans to feel closer to influencers than they are, possibly developing a parasocial relationship, which, just in case any of our influencers does not do not know what that is, is when a consumer feels as if they truly and genuinely know this, you know, influencer, celebrity, yeah. person that they admire, as if the connection between the two of them is a mutual one with, you know, tangible yeah. emotion mm-hmm. and etc. They, they feel closer, like it's a personal friendship. And yes. the issue when you mixed it in these sexualized images is they could also develop, you know, like crushes on the person and think yes. they have a chance with them, which, mm. you know, could benefit their money, you yeah. know, it like, drives some revenue, but it can be dangerous, it you know, is, like, like stalkers. celebrities get a lot of stalkers. There's been, you remember, like, not Selena Gomez, but Selena, like, right. um, the iconic, she's a Latina pop singer, but I think, like, even before I was, or when I was very young, and she was very young, this, like, well, the most famous pop singer, and she was shot and killed. Really? Yeah. yeah. By, by a fan. By a that fan. Yeah, that's, yes, by a fan that was obsessed with her. Yeah. It, it's a troubling revelation, um, but it's not entirely surprising that these sexualized images drive 
profit on social media. The impact of sexualized influencer images on young women's body image as well and their mood is a harsh reality. So not only can you be developing these unhealthy attachments to people, but this could directly affect um, kids' mental health. The constant exposure to these images can inadvertently trigger appearance comparisons, fostering a mindset of dissatisfaction, thinking that your body is, is less desirable than others. It, it's like a loop, viewing these glamorous, often idealized representations like Kylie Jenner's perfect curves that I'm sure a little bit of surgery Very natural. Um, or very expensive personal trainers. Um, it can lead to an unrealistic expectation and sense of inadequacy that you are not enough, especially in the context of social media's pervasive influence. You know, it just is continuing to grow and it's, its influence on self-perception and, and mental well-being. And I think we're all victim to it. Like, you could be the most, come off as the most confident, liberated, self-assured woman. Like three of us here, I think we, we radiate that. But at the end of the day, you know, it's like... <laughs> so. Yeah, but... Um, you know, it's it's insidious, and so, yeah. But, you know, so interviews with influencers reveal complex pressures driving this sexualization. Followers, metrics, and lucrative deals encourage women to self-objectify. A recent article from the Paris School of Business found that many women are convinced that it is not possible to be successful online without showing sex appeals. Wow. Yeah. Mm. Um, and many influencers correlate sexiness with possible success and financial returns. So Makes this sense. complete... Yeah, the attention commodity um, economy, just the complete commodification of the female body. Um, And Instagram's focus on engagement incentivizes this provocative industry. Some frame it as empowering, an entrepreneurial display of confidence or a system that serves patriarchal interests. It's rather a stark contrast. Um, Reducing women to objects of a male gaze. It's a complex interplay of agency, social expectations, and the pursuit of success in a digital landscape that often blurs the lines between empowerment and exploitation. Mm -hmm. And frankly, as the institution that is the media just continues to be on the ascent, I don't see this changing in the near future. Not to be a pessimist, but... Agreed. I mean, this really reminds me of Kim Kardashian, and specifically her company, Skims. Because Kim has profited an enormous amount of her body. Mm-hmm. Um, and now she has this company, Skims, that's for women that want to look like they have Kim Kardashian's body, essentially. Mm-hmm. it's That's the only thing. It's just shapewear. Um, and I just think that, I don't know, and also this whole family um, is just like... They could I have a podcast, a separate episode about yeah, their yeah, influence. Yeah. Maybe yeah. we'll get into that next time. Oof, <laughs> I can take it. I feel like they're just driving yeah. the trend waves of what women's yeah. bodies should look like, really. I, I don't like how Kim, how the whole Kardashian family has affected, like, uh, youth mental health. I mean, I no. definitely compared myself to them. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. And definitely they're profiting off of it with skims, but... I kind of have a mixed relationship with skims. I mean, I've tried their shapewear and it's comfortable (laughs) and it it makes me feel confident. Um, You know, it just, it helps hug your curves a little better. Mm. So I think there's nothing wrong with wearing what you need to in order to feel your best. Um, But knowing that Kim is continuing this cycle is is pretty wild. I mean, the skims dress. It's gorgeous. I I have like the skims dress, the Amazon dupe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Anyway, 
some music artists and influencers celebrate female empowerment while avoiding tropes of sexual objectification. Creative, humanistic representations are possible. However, achieving a just digital space for women requires reorienting the social and material conditions that are shaping our hypersexualized media landscape. Mm-hmm. Individuals, companies, and policymakers, they all have a role to play in advocating for respect, equality, and consent in how women's bodies are depicted and profited from. Yeah, certainly. And, you know, with that being said, awareness and collective action are potent agents of change. Shifting cultural norms toward more empowers, empowering representations of women is not just possible, it's crucial. Imagine a cultural landscape where norms showcase the full spectrum of a of women's humanity, highlighting their complexity, talents, and aspirations without limiting their right to sexual expression and autonomy. There's immense power in media that elevates women beyond the narrow confines of sexual appeal. But untethering the female body from its historical role as a source of male sexual gratification, it becomes a symbol of strength, resilience, and self-determination. Mm. It's about embracing and celebrating the richness of women's experiences. It's a vision of empowerment that transcends stereotypes and fosters a more inclusive and equitable cultural narrative. That's that's a great future to strive for. Mm-hmm. As consumers, we are the ones that hold the power to shape the media landscape by being discerning and media literate. You know, call out some of these bad representations and 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 choose where you're looking. Choosing to support content that aligns with a more just and empowering depictions of women sends a strong message to content creators. However, the onus is not solely on consumers. Media creators obviously play a pivotal role as well. They are the architects of the narratives that shape our cultural perceptions, like I explained with cultivation theory. They're the ones that design what society looks like. And they have the responsibility also to advocate for breaking away from outdated tropes and embracing more diverse and authentic portrayals of women. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And listen, sometimes that authenticity could be found in the more, I guess, quote unquote, like sexually explicit content. You know, it's all about what makes you feel confident and of course like if you are one who is a part of this industry understanding that um it's not all about the money at the end of the day and it's it's something like the pleasure to be found in it is is your pleasure mm-hmm. not that of the audience yeah and i i was just you know thinking back to just some of these more equitable representations like think about like billy eilish like she grew fame off of her music and wearing extremely baggy clothing that didn't show her shape. And people just took her for her art. And the Mm -hmm. second she decided to wear form-fitting clothing because that's what she wanted to do, people started objectifying her. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, you can't control what others do, but you know, it's just finding different ways to express your body and allowing those to flourish in their Definitely. different forms. And I think like going back to the Miley Cyrus thing, like how how did Miley enter the world of fame? How do we know her? Hannah Montana, a Disney star, a baby, like a literal baby. So then this image like ingrained in all of our heads is okay, Miley Cyrus is this little like 11 year old, you know, performing for eight year olds, like baby girl. And what, she's expected to stay that way? No. We all grow. Yes, we Mm -hmm. all grow. And for Miley, that growth meant swinging naked on a wrecking ball. And honestly, like... It was a good-ass song. Yeah, it was. Good for her. (laughs) So, no, it it spans the industries, for sure. And, yeah, but, I mean, the conflation of self-subjugation and personal empowerment is of critical concern. 
the intricacies of female sexual autonomy should not be simplistically tied to promiscuity or internalized misogyny. Mm -hmm. The subtle intertwining of these concepts, as seen in instances like the Watt music video, perpetuates harmful norms and reinforces sexist attitudes. It's vital to untangle the threads of autonomy from stereotypes and challenge the ingrained perceptions that link a woman's agency over her body with derogatory judgments. Mm -hmm. And recognizing and dismantling these norms, it requires a nuanced understanding of the complex interplay between empowerment and societal expectations. And by doing so, we create a space that respects and celebrates the diverse expressions of female autonomy without resorting to harmful stereotypes or judgment. An interesting article that explores these ideas of spectacle and female objectification is one surrounding Victoria's Secret's use of self-subjugation for sale and profit. Do any of you guys remember by any chance, like, like you know, Pink through Victoria's Secret, like their mm-hmm. sister brand, yeah. like the eight for 28, where you can go and you can choose like eight pairs of underwear for $28. Yeah, they had some good deals at Pink. No, they did. But all I remember, like growing up and like, of course, Pink is located in Victoria's Secret. And I'm like, what? Like, I don't know, nine. It was their mm-hmm. tween brand. Yes. But, you know, it's still like you walk in and, and the tween stuff is situated just among like their like bombshell bra and these like these. I don't even know how to explain it. Like these complex enigmas of lingerie that like you struggle because it's just like string and lace. Enigmas. And, yes. <laughs> and I'm like nine years old. And I'm, like, looking at all these types of underwear, and I'm, like, looking at these models, and they're heavily influencing the type of underwear I want to get. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, you know, I, I want the thong. I want the cheeky. I want the... And, and you're literally prepubescent. I'm literally prepubescent. Yeah. But it was not just me. Because then, you know, you talk about it with your friends on, like, our little, like, iPod touches. Like, we text about it. And, sure, like, I left with... My grandma or my mom getting me, like, the boy short style. I was, of course, mm. modest. I'm, I'm nine. But, like, also leaving with the, the wish that in my bag was one of those little, like, you know, more flirty revealing pieces. And, you know, what does that say? Mm. I know. I remember my first grown-up bikini was from Pink Victoria's Secret. I got it when I was 12. Ooh. And it was this, like, neon pink set. And the top was, like this push-up bra that really like really so unnecessary made, I know it, like <laughs> the what, 12-year-old I don't know what I was trying to make out of my 12-year-old breasts but it was something and yeah I just yeah I got this and also a hot pink thong and I felt At really 12. I know who is she I know that was my I was walking into adulthood with that definitely pink the threshold has had been crossed yeah I think for me like my perception of pink was, you know, it was in the mall, like back to school shopping, get some get some of those good deals. And everyone in my middle school was wearing the pink, like sweatshirts and pants and yes. things. Oh, yeah. They had a great like accessory line to go with it. And the perfumes. Um, and the perfumes. I always had a headache when I walked in there. <laughs> and like, now as an adult, I don't really shop in there. Like maybe no. I'll pop into v- VS, but mm-hmm. I, I see all these young kids in there and I, and I just know what's going through their mind. Like, I remember watching the Victoria's Secret fashion show as a kid and thinking, like, wow, like, these women are so beautiful. Like, I want to be like them. I really admired the creativity with all the outfits they put together. But I was definitely looking at myself and knowing I didn't match them. And a lot of people have called out out Victoria's Secret for these portrayals. Um, You see, like, Fenty's... um, 
Rihanna's fashion show where she has so much more body diversity. Mm-hmm. And they, they ended the show, you know? They did? Uh, um, they stopped the Victoria's Secret show. Why did I? I mean, I just, like, never paid. I had no idea yeah, about that. Yeah, they, they ended it because um, so many people kept calling them out for it. I mean, it. yeah. And, and Fenty is just so much... It actually shows, like, women who are going to be wearing these no, products. and I mean, yeah. Victoria's Secret just, they thrived off of beauty being constructed off of these notions of Eurocentricity and off of, yeah, the, the vulnerability and susceptibility of, or and off of the susceptibility of young women to wanting to be more or whatever, whatever that may be. But, yeah, so, you know, this dissonance between claimed values and the actual representation in situations like Victoria's Secret's marketing is stark. While the messaging mm. may claim to resonate with a broad audience, the visual narrative often narrows down to a specific and conventional portrayal of woman, thin, young, and conventionally attractive, emphasizing cleavage, pout lips, and, as we keep saying, curves. Definitely. It's in these instances that the line blurs between celebrating the female body as a symbol of liberation and reducing it to a mere commodity for profit. Think about who was the main audience for some of these fashion shows. You and me. <laughs> <laughs> like, we're watching at home, but who's in the audience? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably men. I feel like Victoria's Secret's philosophy was that sex sells. Yeah. And the more that they show sex on stage, the more women are going to be going out and buying their products, which I don't think is necessarily one for one. Um, I mean, some of their products are pretty good. So, I don't know. Very <laughs> overpriced. But it was very overpriced. Clearly, harking back to their brand identity of this is what's going to magically make you sexy. Like, yeah. Look at all these yeah. women on stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sex sells adage comes to the forefront in my mind right now. Um, it emphasizes how in some contexts the portrayal of the female body is more about catering to the market's demands than fostering empowerment. Um, It's a reminder of the need for authenticity in aligning values with representation, particularly in spaces that wield significant influence over societal perceptions and, you know, kids' mental health. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's like, how do we exploit this? (laughs) Exactly. It's a concerning admission that lays bare the intentional targeting of the vulnerability of young girls by marketing strategies. Mm-hmm. Victoria's Secret CFO Stewart's statement exposes a calculated approach to capitalizing on the desire of teenagers to emulate an older, supposedly more cool image, as he remarked, when somebody's 15 or 16 years old, he said, they want to be older. And they want to be cool like the girl in college. And that's part of the magic of what we do at Pink, which is the company's brand name for younger women, as we discussed earlier. Blech. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's, like, gross. Gross. It's, like, it's like when we just, and this whole idea, like, this is the magic of what we do at Pink. It's like, okay, yeah. you're going to put on their, like, cheeky, like, kind of cheap underwear that's going to, like, rip in the wash yeah. or get, like, new period stains on it. And all of a sudden, everyone, everyone's going to want you. It's like they, they managed to make, like, the um the sexual tension and the blossoming puberty of tweens it's disgusting. aligned with a brand identity like they made pink the thing for kids going through puberty and it goes yeah. to show it's like you know as young girls like even like you know it's we are we kind of become we're told to expect like violence like sexual violence sexualization as being inevitable and inherent and you see like once you cross this as we said earlier like threshold into womanhood it it hits you in the face immediately as a matter of fact it's what pulls you over that threshold 
Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, like this kind of targeting, particularly towards an age group that is still in the process of forming their identities, raises ethical questions about definitely their, <laughs> yeah about the responsibility of companies and media in shaping societal perceptions and influencing self perception. It highlights the importance of scrutinizing not just the products a company sells, but the values and messages it communicates, especially when it comes to impressionable demographics. Yeah, the power dynamics at play in the fashion and beauty industry as a whole, where the quest for profit can sometimes exploit these insecurities and aspirations of young individuals, warrant a critical examination of marketing practices and their potential impact on mental well-being. Yeah, and the promotion of beauty and self-worth towards young girls is based on a narrow Eurocentric ideals that empathize thinness, sexiness, and promiscuity which contributes to a distorted narrative. This narrative not only shapes the way young girls perceive their value, but it also influences young men's understanding of women's self-expression. And the Mm -hmm. creation of a paradigm where a woman's merit is tied to her appeal to men reinforces this dangerous cycle of female objectification. This, um, This entwining of female sexuality with male desire perpetuates harmful stereotypes and undermines the autonomy of women. You know, this theme common throughout this entire discussion and as discussed in relation to other mediums it's essential to challenge these norms and advocate for a more comprehensive and empowering narrative Mm -hmm. one that recognizes the diverse ways individuals express themselves and emphasizes that self-worth is not contingent upon meeting capitalist oriented highly westernized beauty standards Mm -hmm. yeah and Beyond instilling a self-deprecating mentality among young girls, narratives such as those propagated by Victoria's Secret reinforce the notion that being and feeling sexy is solely for the gaze and approval of men. And this skewed perspective is not only diminishing to the importance of a woman's control over her own body and desires, but it also fosters a mindset where self-worth is entangled with external validation. Yeah, I mean, just think of all the different you know, sitcoms of the day that would say, oh, I want to be with a Victoria's Secret model. That became the new model of womanhood. Mm -hmm. It it pushes this idea of, I am not, never going to be a Victoria's Secret model. Encouraging a shift in this media is crucial. Promoting the idea that feeling sexy is personal and empowering experience unrelated to anyone else's expectations or desires. It's about reclaiming agency and challenging the idea that a woman's attractiveness is defined by her by external standards. By fostering a more inclusive and self-affirming approach, we can contribute to breaking down these limiting and harmful perspectives. Totally, and you know, on top of that, embracing the idea that confidence is inherently sexy and that women can feel and express their sexuality without guilt contributes to a more empowering media landscape. I think a notable figure to bring up in this context, or you know, one that's definitely come to my mind, is American model and author Emily Ratajkowski girl crush, um, (laughs) put that in there, who in writing her memoir, My Body, processed her body's commodification and sexual assault. And while Ratajkowski's account primarily dwells into her experiences of sexual assault in the modeling industry, which is an issue we can discuss in another episode, but she explicitly highlights how these incidents came along from the loss of ownership of her body. Reduced to a mere object for modeling profit, her body's value was diminished leading the men in her life to perceive it solely as a tool for their sexual gratification. And as Rajowski stated, this one, this one hits the heart. Um, in her early 20s, it had never occurred to her that the woman who, 
who gained their power from beauty were indebted to the men whose desire granted them that power in the first place. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Take that in for a second. Yeah, right? Yeah. Just as we said with video games, it's important to know, like, who are the authors? Who is behind this industry? Yeah. You know, yeah. You know it's, it's marionetted. Like, yeah. It's like... These models, they're not necessarily trying to hurt people's mental health or anything. It's its what are the fashion designers behind this and the, the CFOs that are trying to profit off of these young girls' insecurities. Stuart, mm-hmm. as much as the pub. Yeah, CFO damn Stuart. Stuart. Stuart's God damn Stuart. And Les Wexner. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This exact notion is what sexy media and its objectification of women tend to fuel. Our bodies turn transactional, whether it's a video game aimed at tween boys or an underwear catalog targeting adolescent girls. The common thread is the reduction of women's bodies to mere opportunities for profit, which we've said over and over again in but, this But, you know, episode. you can't say it enough. <laughs> like, you really can't. It's very true. It's, it's that prevalent. Mm-hmm. And then Ratatowski's quote, we can liken the men to the broader media landscape. The purported values of brands like Victoria's Secret, the spotlight on nudity among female influencers, and the promotion of specific body types in fashion magazines, they collectively construct a distorted and unsustainable definition of beauty. As young women and girls strive to meet these standards, we not only incur the literal cost of buying into their products, but also sacrifice our confidence, individuality, and increasingly our self-love and worth. Yeah, and essentially, as we perpetuate the media's sexist and narrow-minded standards of beauty, succumbing to the urge to conform to their harmful criteria, we find ourselves toxically, to- we find ourselves toxically indebted to them. Honing in on Victoria's Secret and personal experiences such as that of Emily Ratajkowski is important. However, it is important to note that these instances, along with other subjects we've discussed, serve as a symptom of the larger issues of sexism and the objectification of women in the broader media landscape. It is a pervasive theme that we are striving to build immunity against. No, it's it's really, it's an epidemic. It's a pandemic. And, you know, as mentioned above, our dear Audre Lorde, there is power in the erotic. The media and society, by and large, have conditioned us to view female eroticism as a moral and subject to be condemned. However, this is not inherent to its nature. For, as, once again, as Audre Lorde said, by recognizing the power of the erotic within our lives, we are given the energy to pursue genuine change within our world, rather than merely settling for a shift of characters in the same weary drama. We hope this episode has allowed you to question the media portrayals you have seen in your life. Let us strive to improve media portrayals of women and to not let these sexist ideals impact the society at large. This has been State of the Pod. Special thank you to the Investigative Biology Department at Cornell University for our recording studio. This episode was produced by Adele, Eve, and Therana. This episode is dedicated to the women in our lives that have imparted on us self-love. And lastly, screw Stuart! Stuart. The CEO of Victoria's CFO. CFO. (laughs) Screw it. See you next time.